You're listening to another great message from Northside Community Church. Uh, we start a new series, and I'm I'm just as well because I am I've been deeply concerned. I've been deeply concerned that I've been taking us all down a track and a trajectory that could be dangerous, because we have been studying character for the past three to four weeks. And that can be a very dangerous thing if you are not looking at character anableptically. Remember Four Eyes? If you don't know what I'm talking about, welcome to Northside. We're a bunch of Four Eyes here. And anablep is a funny little salamander type insect that lives in ponds. And it's actually got four eyes. And it has four eyes, two sets, a set that looks beneath the surface of the water and another set of eyes that looks above the surface of the water. And so the anableb has four eyes and... In our new season, we're saying everything we must do as a church when we approach the Word of God, we must look at it anableptically. And so for the past three weeks, we've been looking at the Bible anableptically beneath the surface in terms of our characters, who we are becoming, the inner transformation, the inner, the hidden life. And if we do that, then we could have been down too far down the wrong track because we also need to look upwards and see the much bigger picture of what the Bible is talking about when it comes to character. You see, it's really easy to miss the forest from the trees when you read the Bible. And part of the reason that is, is because oh, there are so many different stories and there's so many different genres and there's so many different words and there's so many things we don't understand. We have to understand that the Bible is not a compendium of stories like Aesop's fables or something like that. It's not a set of good sayings that are all stitched together. In fact, it's one story. It's a big story. It's a big story that if we could recover the Bible and see the title of that new story, the title of the Bible would be, There is a God and you're not it. (laughs) It's one big story and here's the forest. God made the world. He loved it and it was devastated because of our turning away from him. And he re-enters the world to rescue us from this decay and degradation. And one day he's going to make all things right and new again. No more tears, no more crying, no more pain. He's doing that, that, that there is something wonderful waiting for us. But in the meantime, when Jesus says, soul to the earth, light of the world, we know this passage well. He's not doing it to be poetic. It's a stark reality. Jesus is saying, left to itself, the world will darken and decay. And we can over-spiritualize this, but let's look at some practical examples. We live in a world, don't we, ladies and gents, where relationships are constantly blowing themselves apart. Friendships and and, and even just trying to be in a relationship and the the grip and the darkness of loneliness. And and some of you this morning, I know, are, are desperately clinging on Uh, to marriages and relationships with family members, daughters, sons, sisters, cousins. We live in a world where relationships are constantly tearing themselves apart. Jesus says the world is falling apart relationally and spiritually and emotionally and psychologically. We sense this, right? And so Jesus says, I've come into the world to arrest that, to stop that, to unwind this process. Yes, one day it's going to be fixed up, but... I've come to stop that. What he's saying is that my dad is not some parent that has left you as toddlers in the car with the windows wound up. He's smashed a hole in the side of it and said, there is hope for you. 
You're not going to perish, but the job is not done yet. And how? What is he going to do? Fireflies. It's a bit of an American term, but they're those funny little bugs, aren't they? That glow everywhere in the darkness. He said, my great plan for the world. He's like, I've got it. The smartest guy in the universe who said, I'm going to come and I'm going to, I'm going to gather this little jar of fireflies and I'm going to spread them out into that darkness. And their little glow, as insignificant as they, they think it seems, is going to bring light to a dark world. Are you seeing things anaplectically? Fireflies. That's your new term for 2015. We are all fireflies, the light of the world, a city of the hill. And big, the big picture of all of this is that Jesus says, my saving actions aren't just here to whisk you off into heaven. I'm here to gather a community that is to be so glowing and so beautiful that it's to show the world how life is truly meant to be lived. How do these guys deal with money? How do they deal with sex? How do they deal with power? They're to come together and show the world how this life is truly meant to be lived. That's the hope for the world. The bringing together now of races and ethnicities and people who are totally different from each other to say the decay of relationships can be unwound. There's hope for the world in all of this. And so that's where often we get this passage has been the basis of everything that I say here, that the quality of our community will be the secret to our mission in the world. And in recent times, I've said another way to put it is that it's the combined character of our characters as a church. That there's both, if you look at it anaplectically, you have an individual responsibility to develop your character, but there is a corporate responsibility for us to shine out into the world. And so if we talk about character, what is that character for the church? And so we're going to explore this over the next three weeks. It's what I want to look at. I want to th- I, I've been dreaming with God saying, Lord, what, what three things would, would resemble the heart of this quality community if at the end of 2015 we embodied this? And these things are, these three things are, these characteristics are that we be gospel sharing, that we naturally just share the message of Jesus. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. That we be neighbor loving, that we learn to truly do mercy to people who are different from us, next door to us but also that we're community transforming, that we are such an attractive community that when people see the church, they say, I want a piece of that. (laughs) But this morning we talk about gospel sharing. We talk about it because we talk about a lot of important things in life, but I don't know about you. I talk about a lot of important things with my friends and family and people in the world, but I've got to be honest with you as a pastor out there in the real world, I still don't do a lot of talking about Jesus. Why, why is that and how can we be better at that? Why should we share the gospel? Why should we be gospel sharers? Take a look um, at the lyrics of the iTunes number four at the moment. If ever I need some inspiration for preaching, maybe it's called procrastination. I go to iTunes and I, I was excited this week because I was looking up iTunes and there was a song called Take Me to Church. And I thought we're winning. <laughs> number four. Until I started listening. It said by this artist called Hosier, Take me to church. I'll worship like a dog at the shrine of your lies. I'll tell you my sins and you can sharpen your knife. Offer me that deathless death. Oh, good God, I'll give you my life. Ouch. 
Is it just me or has the church got a bit of a reputation problem at the moment in the world? I mean the church proper, not just Northside. <laughs> Part of me feels a bit saddened when I hear that sort of stuff because I think, well, what hope have we got against this sort of uh, reaction by people in the world? And almost this attack against us as the church. And I get frustrated because I went, oh, if you could only see what we're really on about, then it wouldn't be like that. But would it surprise you that this is not the first time that this sort of atmosphere has surrounded the church? In fact, one of the remarkable principles of the Bible is that the church actually explodes in this type of atmosphere. If you go through and you look at the early church, the fact was that the early church exploded for nearly 300 years. It's, it, some commentators said it grew at 40% a year for 300 years. And one commentator, Alan Crider, observed that it just it, it explodes. He says that early Christians didn't engage in public preaching. It was too dangerous. There, there were practically no evangelists or missionaries whose names we know. There were no mission boards. There were, they didn't write treatises about evangelism. After Nero's persecution in the mid-first century, the churches in the Roman Empire actually closed their worship services to visitors. Talk about being seeker-sensitive. <laughs> The deacon stood at the church's door, serving as bouncers, checking to see that no unbaptized person, no lying informer could come in. And yet the church was growing. Unofficially, it was superstitio. Prominent people scorned it. Neighbors discriminated against Christians in countless petty ways. Periodically, the church was subjected to max executions. It was hard to be a Christian and still the church explodes. Why? Because what happened then, when you don't have the big names, you know, there was, no, there was no Billy Graham on record back then, there was no Brian Houston, there was no Robert Shuler, there was no Sam Haddon. Oh, oops, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> there were no big name preachers and it explodes. Why? Because the, it, the church exploded because it had a network of informal gospel sharers. Hacks, gospel hacks is another way to put it in colloquial terms. Acts chapter 8 verse 4, when the church gets persecuted, it says that everyone flings out into the countryside. They all spring out and it says that they preached the gospel wherever they went. And then it says, and then there was great joy in the city. There were informal gospel sharers. Hacks, hacks, because one pagan writer, Celsus, said that we see him in private houses, the most illiterate and bucolic yokels. They would not dare to say anything at all in front of their elders and more intelligent masters, but then they get hold of anyone who is as ignorant as themselves to say, oh, we know how men ought to live. If your children do as we say, you'll be happy yourselves and you'll make your home happy too. And so one commentator comes back and he writes about this, and, and Michael Green says this. He says, in fact, of course, it pays the highest compliment to the zeal and the dedication of the most ordinary Christians in the sub-apostolic age. Having found treasure, they meant to share it with others to the limits of their ability. They were hacks with sharing the gospel and it just spread. The message of Jesus just spread and it explodes. So when Jesus says here in Matthew 5... When he says that you're the light of the world, a city on the hill can't be hidden. When he's saying that, what he's saying to us today and the person that's number four to Hosea, he says, look, we understand as Christians that today the modern person may not want you to take them to church. 
But I'm finding that the modern person is open to you taking the church to them. That's what it means to be an informal gospel sharer. Now, what is gospel sharing? What does gospel sharing mean? Uh, I, I call it being a Gumby Christian, but we're going to get to that uh, in, in a second. What it, what it practically means, let's look at verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city on the hill can't be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under its bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. Jesus is saying is that my expectation is that you are consistently visible in the world. Gospel sharing, and to be more detailed in this, gospel sharing is to have a relational integrity. A relational integrity. Let's unpack this a little bit. Now look at his, look at his language there. Salt, it goes in. Light, it's distinct. A city on the hill, it's consistently visible. Uh, another way to look at it is that, is that Christians themselves are to be contextualized or culturally adapted letters of the gospel. Second Corinthians 3, Paul says, oh, are we trying to prove ourselves again to the world? You yourselves are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry. A letter of Christ. See the imagery there? You're read by everyone. You're visible. And so Jesus' language gives us a really good nuance in terms of how that's to work for us practically. Salt, it goes in on one hand. Light, it's distinct on the other hand. And the city on the hill, it's constantly visible. In other words, we'll, we'll have an impact for the gospel if on one hand we are like the people around us. And yet on the other hand, we are distinctly different from the people around us. And yet in that balance, we're, we're always constantly engaged. And here's what that means. First of all, Christians must be like their neighbours in the food they eat and the clothes they wear and their, their language and their appearance and their work life and their recreational and their cultural activities. It's actually okay and good to be like the people around you. To participate fully with your neighbours. And that is that Christians should be very good at what others are good at. It means if you're in finance, you should be very good at finance. If you're in the arts, you should be very good at the arts. It means you should go in and be like those around you. And what that does is that, that opens you up to be able to have all sorts of conversations with people who don't have a faith. So you do, to be like them. And, and not only that, it eventually gives people a glimpse of what true Christianity is really about. So what that means practically is it would be good if it would be good if a young man in the Credit Suisse building down at Circular Quay, a non-Christian guy in finance, saw an, an older Christian member of his workplace who was just open to being alongside him and talking differently and, and sharing with him. It, it would mean, on the other hand, that uh, there's an older lady in the arts and there's a a, a talented young musician who's alongside her and just lives a life of distinction and difference. That, that Christians are present alongside their neighbours in the world. So first of all, it means you've got to be like the world. The second thing, on the other hand, though, is you've got to be unlike their neighbours. We didn't read verse 13 because we cut it out and it didn't quite work with the fireflies theme that we're going for this morning. But what does Jesus say? You're the salt of the earth. And if the salt loses its saltiness... What good is it just to be thrown out and trampled by people? And so on the other hand, you, you also have actually salt. Salt is distinct, but it's a wonderful, subtle distinction, isn't it? 
It goes in, it's, it's present, it brings out all the flavours in the meat and the food. And so we are to be distinctly different from the world, but for the world. And so in many key ways, these early Christians were, they were different from the people around them. And so that's what made Christianity so attractive, these informal gospel sharers. And so it should be for us as well that as we go and we're distinctly different from the world around us, people should see that as something good and beautiful and attractive. What do you mean that you give your money away like that to your church every week? What do you mean that money doesn't control you like that? Where to be different? But in the middle of all of that, of being like the world and apart from the world, we're always to be engaged. Jesus says, you're a city on a hill that can't be hidden. It means we're to be visible. Simply put, to be engaged means to be willing to be identified as a believer. And how hard is that? <laughs> That's the tension. We're going to come to that in a second. But it means simply to be willing to be identified as a believer wherever you are. And so to engage people and to be like the world without being willing to be a believer is what we call the blended in approach. It's that approach where you go in and you like the world, but you're not distinct because realistic, we're worried, realistically we're worried about reputation and worried about what people will say and we're worried about the ramifications. And so we blend. But the opposite can be true as well. It's certainly possible for a person to identify as a believer without actually engaging outside of the church. I call this the Christian bubble approach, right? And the Christian bubble approach means that, that, that every waking hour beyond your work is all caught up with Christian activities. The question is this morning, how many non-Christian friends are you in relationship with in your life? That's one of the great drawbacks of having a healthy, vibrant, vital Christian community like Northside is our biggest risk is we just like hanging out with each other. <laughs> and Jesus is saying, no, you can't just bubble up. So let me draw this together. Gospel sharing, what it is, is actually to have relational integrity. What it means is that believers visibly demonstrate their faith exactly the same in every aspect of their life. It's sort of, you know, like if Jesus was still alive and he was at freedom, he's saying, you know, don't, don't, don't put your light under one of those funky lampshades that people have these days. You see, the, the reality is, is we live under lampshades where we, we, we're still shining our light, a lot of us, but we cast shadows into areas of our life. There's certain parts of our work life, right, or our family life, or our relational life where we don't want to let the light shine. We don't want people to know. How do we have a relational integrity? Let me draw it together. It's, it's being a Gumby Christian. Now, I know that sounds a bit weird because when I was back in high school, being a Gumby, was, that was a derogatory term. So that's not what I'm getting at. What I'm saying is I used to have a Gumby doll as a kid. Anyone? Yeah, everyone heard of Gumby? He's been around for a while, right? Gumby was this clay-modelled green dude that just was green and clay. And he was this stop-start animation and people would mould him and he would come alive and... Anyway, I love Gumby. I had a Gumby doll, but he wasn't clay. He was actually this form of plastic that had wires in him. And the thing with my Gumby is that uh, no matter how much you bent his arms or his legs or his head around him, like no matter how much you bent him and forced him in, he'd still eventually just spring back to his normal Gumby self. 
Now, he's distinctly different from the clay model on the television because you do that to a clay model and you put some pressure on it from the outside and it, it, it stays that way. You see, the doll, on the other hand, it was both flexible but it was unshapeable. In other words, no matter how much you bent it, it came back to its form. It had an integrity about it. And it's, this is... This is a whole summing up of what Jesus is saying here is that on one hand, we're to become be Christians, we're to have a flexibility, to where to go into the world, we're to shift and shape and, and to be fluid with that. But on the other hand, we're to spring back to shape. There's got to be a fundamental part to you and I that does not change. Because if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it ever be salty again? Is that making sense? Are you, what sort of Gumby Christian life are you living? <laughs> are you, are like, yeah, are you living a clay model Gumby life? So whenever someone pushes against you with an opinion or something from the world, then you just remain in that shape. Or are you plastic model Gumby that you're flexible with it? You'll go with it. You're not abrasive. You're not in their face straight up. But eventually, you move back to the fundamentals of who you are. Now, let's, let's get practical as we finish off. And we'll go through some real quick points. Some people are thinking, all right, all this evangelism stuff and gospel sharing. and oh, We've heard it all before. What, you know, what do we do? Often there's so many people that have got a great heart desire in the church and they're thinking, how, how does all of this work? I'm not going to go into great depth about it this morning, but we're just going to show you some of the ways it can happen. Here's the first way. In the order of priority, the steps that it can take, the first way that you can share the gospel is one-on-one informally. Let others know of your faith by simply mentioning church, that you went to church on a Sunday. Anyone ever done that at work? You've seen the reaction, how powerful it is. I, on the other hand, people used to ask me, what would you do on the weekend? I went to church. Yeah, I just sort of hung out for an hour and a half between 9.30 and 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. What, doing brunch? No, not brunch. What, church. Uh, I'm just encouraging you not to sneeze it this week. Okay? <laughs> just share where you've been. It's incredibly powerful. I'll ask questions about other people's belief experiences and with faith and church and just simply listen appreciatively and, and compassionately. That's what Gumby Christians do. They're flexible. Share a difficult personal issue that, that you've had and, and be sure to mention how your faith has helped get you through it. Share your spiritual narrative. Share a brief testimony of your experience as a Christian and why it's been so vital for you. That's the informal part of it. That's water cooler stuff. That's mum's group stuff. Then the other way to do it, the next level up, is the one-to-one, the planned intentional. So you do it informally, but then you can do it intentionally. So offer someone a book or an audio recording about Christian issues. Preferably not on the return of Christ, by the way. Straight up. <laughs> But, but something that, that invites them to discuss their reaction. Initiate a discussion about a friend's biggest problems to Christianity. I've got a mate that can't stand this aspect of Christianity. What do you think about it? Or even if, the, if they're at that point, regularly re- read the Bible together with this person. Then the third one is, we've got informal, intentional. The third one is communal. Then start looking for the opportunities to invite them in, into one of the many different ways that we as a church reach into the world. A connect group, a barbecue with, with friends as you're getting together. 
all of the different ways that we interact. Community is so vital because I'm always saying it's my job to argue that Christianity is true. It's your job, church, to prove that it works. And we see it time and time in this place. I just had an email from a young adult girl this week. She said, my parents sort of exposed me to Christian values, but I've never checked out the whole Christianity thing. I've been coming for two weeks and I've just been loving what I'm seeing. I never knew Christianity could be like this. I'm absolutely confident that we are the sort of church and we work so hard as a church to be the sort of place that you can invite your friends to and they hopefully can see church for what it is meant to be. The last one, the most powerful, it's on the way home, it's at brunch after church, it's at work, but then it's just simply to share your faith. What's your story? How did God work in your life? All of these things begin to progress through that spectrum in terms of being a gospel sharer. Is it... Do you reckon we could at least do one of those up there? I guess the bigger question is, what could that look like, church, this year? What could it look like if there's 300 and something of us that on a regular basis intentionally are looking for those relationships just to, just to not sneeze church in the conversation, just to start there? Oh, I know what I'd be seeing. We'd be seeing a place that's starting to come alive. We'd have a place that's starting to expand like five times what we're already seeing. We'd start to see a church that, like we're seeing it at, at the moment where we've got another young adult couple and they know a, another friend and that friend's dating someone else and that, that guy's coming along because he sort of thinks that Christianity is important to this girl here and then he comes along to church and he discovers what it's all about and he's going, this is pretty cool, and he signed up for Connection Group. We would just see more and more of that, of people coming alive and seeing Christianity for what it really is because we're not just trying to take them to church, we're trying to take the church to them. So, I guess as we finish, do any of you struggle with this? I do. I, I always cringe. I, I'm sort of one of those people that, that shift in my seat whenever we've got to talk about sharing our faith. And I, I'm not sure if I've necessarily got the gift of, the, of evangelism, but that is the worst way to possibly think about it. Remember, we are informal gospel sharers. Acts 8.4 said everyone preached the gospel wherever they went. Evangelism is not necessarily a gift, but we struggle. We struggle. Why don't we live shining our light into every era of our lives? And if you are anything like me, it's for one of two reasons. The first one is fear. Let's be real. I'm afraid. I'm afraid of what people will say. I'm afraid of what my friends will say. And on the other hand, there can actually be deep down a bit of a pride issue, a bit of a superiority issue for want of a better term. It manifests itself in a lack of motivation that I've heard this Christian thing and uh, look, God can fix it. Isn't it up to the Holy Spirit to convict the world of their sin? And, and I, don't, I don't fully get involved in the lives of the lost to really understand the gravity of the situation and the big picture because I'm not seeing it anaplectically. It's either fear or pride. And here's how we solve this with the gospel. What is the gospel? We've been talking about it all morning. You know, there's like 15 different ways, 50 different ways that you could present it. Here's mine this morning. You know what the gospel is? The gospel is that in Jesus Christ, God has come in. He's elbowed the car window. He's busted a hole in it. He said that you will not perish. And that one day he is, is going to extract you out of that death box. <laughs> And bring you into a relationship with the Father that you've always wanted. 
It means one of two things. And here's how, here's how that solves the fear and it's how it solves the pride. On, on, on one hand, if, if, you, if you come in and understand that God has broken into the world and the whole plot line of the Bible is that he's broken in to have relationship with you and the only voice and the only sense of approval and the only father that really matters is him and he's the one who's tracked you down and smashed in to that degree to do it. If you ground it in that, then who gives a rat's what everyone else thinks? I know in my own life, if I'm afraid of sharing the gospel, it's because I haven't gotten the gospel. I haven't worked it into my heart. On the other hand, there's the pride issue. <laughs> if you understand that the gospel is that God has busted in and you were just a toddler sitting there hoping that the 30 degree temperatures wouldn't penetrate into the car. If, if, if you realize that you were just a toddler and God has busted in just at the right time to bring you into safety then you come to understand that you didn't do any of this. That you are, as, as uh, many of the commentators say, you're a sinner saved by grace. You, you are on a trajectory that it's not saying that you're a bad person or not. You're just trapped in the death box. God comes in. He saves you through no work of your own. And so therefore, here's what it means if you realize that you're a sinner saved by grace. On the one hand, you realize that you were in so much trouble that God had to die for you. So how can you feel prideful and superior to everyone else? And in fact, if he did that for you, then you've got to share that with others as well. How can we feel superior to them? We're, we're not Christians because we've got better doctrine. We're not Christians because we've got a better life. We're not Christians because we've got a better anything. But on the other hand, how can you be scared of what they think? How can you have fear? You've been so humbled by the gospel that you can't be superior to the people that you talk to, but you've been so affirmed by this father that's broken in for you, then who cares what anyone else thinks? Folks, that's what will make you gospel sharers. There's a place in Ephesians 2 where Paul says, you are God's workmanship, created to do his good deeds. <laughs> there are hands out there that only you can hold. There are people out there only you can reach. There are hearts breaking that only you can heal. Your gender, your age, your race, your location, your workplace, your sorrows, your experience, your age, all of these things are a fingerprint. There are certain people out there God wants to touch through you and they're not going to be touched without you. So just be a gospel sharer this week. Let's pray.